0: Joining us online, as I said earlier, my name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. And in light of this week's events, I have chosen to shuffle up our preaching schedule a little bit and to preach this morning from Psalm 10. Ian Hammond was scheduled to preach this morning, and he's going to be preaching in just a few weeks. I initially planned to begin this three-part series on the book of Psalms in a couple of weeks. But I've chosen to break it up because I believe God has something to say to us from this psalm this morning. And the three-part series on the psalms is entitled, Why We Sing. And the title of our message this morning is, Justice for the Helpless. And before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, we gather as your people to hear from you through your word. By your spirit, may you reorient our disoriented hearts. Comfort us and draw near to us your people, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever wondered why we sing? Why do we sing as part of our worship service? Apart from the sermon, which is about 30 minutes long, there's nothing that we allot as much time to as singing. 15 to 20 minutes of every worship service. I think there are a number of reasons why we do so. First, the Bible emphasizes singing. Throughout the Bible, God's people respond to God's redemptive works with songs. We have songs from Moses, songs from Deborah, songs from Mary. And right in the middle of our Bibles, we have the largest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms, a book of 150 songs. The psalms were the inspired hymnal of the people of God. They were the hymnal that Jesus sang and used in worship, and they are the songs that the church has sung for over 2,000 years. Beyond the emphasis upon songs and singing in the Bible is the impact of lyrics when combined with music. The act of setting lyrics to music, it allows us to slow down. ...to meditate, to think about what we are singing and saying. Singing gives the words time to penetrate our hearts. As Augustine says, the one who sings prays twice... Singing allows us to do what Paul speaks and calls us to do in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Another aspect of the psalms that I think is worthy of note is the range of experiences and emotions that the psalms discuss. The Psalms teach us to bring all of our experiences to God in prayer and in song. The Psalms never run away from the hard experiences and questions and circumstances of this life. Rather, the Psalms run towards those very difficult questions. This is the reason that so many of us turn to the Psalms when we read our Bible. They're easy for us to relate to. They're relevant to us because they they mine the depths of what it is to live the human experience. That's why when faced with the violence of this last week, I thought it appropriate that we begin this series early in order for us to benefit from the depth of spiritual experience and reflection that the psalms offer us. In our psalm this morning, we are confronted with a question, one that has likely passed through the minds of many of us this last week. And that question is this. Where is God when the wicked oppress the helpless. More pointedly, where was God on Monday when friends and families who were gathered to celebrate the 4th had bullets rained down on them from a rooftop? Where is God when the wicked oppress the helpless? As difficult as this question is, the Bible does not shy away from addressing just these types of questions... The Bible doesn't shy away from confronting the ugliness of mankind's wickedness and the pain that this wickedness inflicts upon those against whom it is perpetrated. The word of God gives us permission to ask hard questions, to express our anger, our fear, our confusion, our doubts, and even our complaints. And as our compassionate and tender-hearted Father, God hears our cries and he gently reorients our disoriented hearts by directing our eyes to him and to the ultimate justice that he promises to bring about. The main point this morning is this. God calls us, us the helpless, to entrust ourselves to him believing that he will ultimately bring about justice. God calls us, the helpless, to entrust ourselves to him, believing that he will ultimately bring about justice. Point number one is this, honest questions of God. Honest questions of God. The psalmist asks two tough questions of God. Questions of God that some of us may be ashamed or scared to ask. Look with me at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist asks these questions because he is experiencing the oppression of the wicked. And so he brings his complaint to God. He says to God, God, you say you're a refuge in time of need. You say you're a fortress for us. You say you hear our cries, and yet we are oppressed by the wicked. Why, when you promised to defend defend us, do you leave us defenseless? We are suffering, and you seem indifferent. You are standing far away. You seem even absent. You're hiding yourself in times of trouble. Not only do these questions frame the entire psalm, I think they teach us something that is important. They teach us that we can and that we should bring our most profound doubts and questions and even complaints to God. This verse gives us permission to be real with God in the midst of our suffering. And I believe we need this permission, an example from the psalmist, because oftentimes when we are confronted with suffering, we do not have the most helpful responses for instance some of us are tempted to bottle up all of the emotions that come with suffering but doing so it only adds to our suffering. I used this analogy with someone this week. Bottling up our emotions is like placing over a bandage over a wound that has not yet been cleaned. For a moment, it seems expedient. You can hide the wound, but ultimately what's going to happen is it's going to fester and become infected. And the wound, which was already bad to begin with, is only going to become worse. But as we all know, if you've had a child who's had a wound, cleaning a wound causes more pain in the moment. But what do we tell the child? I've got to clean it. Otherwise, it's going to be worse. I know it hurts, but we have to clean it first before we can bandage it and it can be mended. Acknowledging the depth of our emotions, pressing into them, bringing them to God and to one another... ...although painful is what allows us to clean and to bandage our spiritual and our emotional wounds properly... ...so that we can begin to process and heal. Others of us are tempted to direct our emotions in a horizontal response. You've seen this, you might have engaged in this. How should we change policy? We debate the policies... Look for someone to blame. Who's responsible for this? We turn to hindsight. Is there some way that we could have seen this coming so that next time we can prevent this from happening? All of these are proper questions and they have their time and their place. But ultimately, these horizontal solutions are insufficient in and of themselves. They are insufficient because they fail to place God in the frame... They're purely horizontal. They do not bring God into the picture of what is happening around us. And they're insufficient because they fail to deal with the depth of human, human's depravity, which can only be addressed by the redeeming work of God. There is a time and a place for us to discuss and to consider how can we prevent such things from happening. But we mustn't do so prior to or in the absence of bringing our suffering and the responses to that suffering to God. First and foremost, God calls us to direct our emotions to him. The psalmist's words are an invitation to us to ask hard questions of God, to turn to him in the midst of our pain, trusting that he already knows our pain and that he's more than sufficient to answer the questions that we ask of him. The psalmist opens with these two questions. He then pivots to describe how the wicked answer these questions in verses 2 to 11. And then how we are to answer these questions in verses 12 to 18. Point number two, the arrogance of the wicked. On one level, we don't know what led this young man in Highland Park to commit the horrific crimes that he committed. ...committed, and we may, we may never know. But on a more fundamental level... ...the psalmist teaches us what drives the wicked to oppress the helpless. The wicked oppress the helpless in their arrogance. Verse 2, in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The wicked oppress the helpless because, verse 3... ...they are driven by the desires of their own souls... ...leading them to renounce the Lord... When the wicked renounce the Lord, they refuse to acknowledge that God has any claim upon them and that God will hold them to account. In other words, the wicked man believes I can do whatever I want and God cannot say or do anything to stop me. The wicked not only renounces God's claim upon them, verse 4, they say in their heart, there is no God. Leading them to, in verse 5, ignore the existence of God's future judgment. They sneer at God. Verse 10, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. They even sneer at human enemies saying, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This posture of heart leads the wicked man to oppress the weak and the helpless. In his mind, there is no accountability from God... Therefore, he can do whatever he wants to his fellow human beings, disposing of them as he sees fit, treating them as prey to be hunted and destroyed by his might. Look with me at verses 7 through 10, where it describes how the wicked then prey upon the helpless. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are, helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. Why do the wicked oppress the weak and the helpless? because there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have renounced the Lord's claim upon them, denying his justice, even denying his existence. And in their arrogance, they have given themselves over to wickedness, leading them to use mankind for their own gain, even going so far as to mercilessly cut them down like a lion destroys its prey and like a hunter captures its prey in a net. The only life that a wicked man values is his own. The wicked man has answers to these two questions in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? The answer of the wicked, because God is indifferent to wickedness... ...and he will not hold me accountable. Why does God hide himself in times of trouble? Answer, because God doesn't exist. Therefore, I am free to live as I choose. But the wicked man does not have the last word... The wicked man must answer to God, for God has a different answer to the questions of verse 1. And his answers come through the prayer of the psalmist, the prayer of the helpless. Point number three, the prayer of the helpless. God also answers these opening questions. He says, despite what it looks like, he is not indifferent, he is not absent He will ultimately judge the wicked and he will deliver the helpless who trust in him. The psalmist prays in verse 2, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Despite the questions and the doubts that the psalmist has opened with in verse 1, he cries out to God in whom he has placed his faith. He calls out to God to rescue the helpless and remember the afflicted. He then confronts the lies of the wicked. Verses 13 and 14. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But speaking of God, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Friends, despite what it may seem... God was not far off on Monday. He did not hide himself in this tragic moment. He is not indifferent to evil. Our God saw it all. And he notes each and every one of these sinful acts. He is counting each and every one of them. And he will act. He will take matters into his holy and all-powerful hands. God will act to judge the wicked and vindicate The helpless. He is the helper of the fatherless. He is the helper of the helpless. And make no mistake, we were helpless on Monday. In a moment of celebration and joy, in a moment when families were gathered men and women, children, grandchildren, and grandparents a wicked man mercilessly mowed down people with bullets. In that moment, helpless people fell to the ground, lifeless and injured. Helpless people ran for cover, abandoning all of their belongings, taking shelter behind buildings, cars, even in dumpsters, anywhere they could find to flee from the bullets that were raining on them. We felt our helplessness in the hours that followed, sheltering in our homes, not knowing where this man was or what he planned to do. We felt helpless when it sank in that many of us were gathered at parades throughout the surrounding villages, parades just like the one in Highland Park. When we realized this could have happened to any of us. We felt our helplessness when this violence shattered our sense of safety. Even here, even here, wickedness can befall us at any moment without warning or the ability to defend ourselves. Is no place safe? But it's in our helplessness that God calls us to commit ourselves to him. Verse 14, to you, the helpless commits himself. This word commit here, it's stronger than it first implies. It's not just to commit ourselves. It is to abandon ourselves to God. When we feel utterly helpless and we have nowhere to turn, God calls us to abandon ourselves to him. Like a terrified child runs to the arms of a parent, we in our helplessness are run to run to the arms of God who will ultimately call all wickedness to account and will eradicate wickedness from the world. And this committing of ourselves to God, it is rooted in our belief that God is, hears us and will help us. Verse 17, O Lord, you hear. He hears the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may may strike terror no more. God is not distant from us. He is not deaf to our cries In the midst of our suffering, he will strengthen us. In the midst of our suffering, he hears our cries for help and he will bring about justice on our behalf. Committing ourselves to God is also rooted in our belief in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' suffering and death is where we see the oppressive wickedness of mankind at its worst. It's also through Jesus' resurrection that we have the hope of justice and vindication that Christ offers to all who acknowledge their helplessness and turn to him. Throughout Jesus' life and most pointedly during his suffering and death on the cross, Jesus committed himself to the Father. Jesus willingly made himself helpless, handing himself over to wicked men because he knew that in so doing he was ultimately entrusting himself to the father. And in so doing he subjected himself to the worst of mankind's disregard and arrogance towards God and human life. The holy one was convicted a sinner and a criminal. The majestic one who's worthy of praise was mocked and spat upon. The all-powerful God of the universe was beaten. The king of glory hung naked abandoned upon a tree. And the Lord and giver of life was murdered. Throughout this ordeal, the enemies of God, they arrogantly believed that God was indifferent to their wickedness. They knowingly convicted and murdered an innocent man, treating his life as of no value. And for a time, it seemed that the hands of wicked men had prevailed. When they put him in the tomb, they probably thought to themselves, we have won. God did not see we have defeated ...the enemy, but wickedness never has the final word. God did not abandon Christ to the hand of wicked men. On the third day, Christ rose from the dead... ...and through Christ's resurrection life, the arm of the wicked was broken. The arm of sin and death and the devil was broken... And one day Christ will return to bring justice in all of its fullness. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. One day he will make all things new and the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. But for now, we must wait for that day. Wait in the midst of wickedness. We must wait and we must rest in Christ We rest in him by acknowledging our helplessness. Acknowledging our helplessness and committing ourselves to him who hears our cries, inclines his ear, and strengthens us in our time of need. By faith we wait and we rest in Christ. We rest in the justice that he will bring as the Lord of creation and the judge of all the earth. We rest in his promise that he will break the arm of the wicked And he will deliver us into his kingdom where we will be utterly free from pain and suffering. This hope that we have in Christ is a hope that the wickedness of mankind cannot ultimately touch. By faith we wait and we rest in Christ. We rest in the resurrection life that he has earned for us. Now resting in Christ, it does not mean that we will not suffer in this life. Do not hear an empty promise that God says there will never be wickedness again on this earth... ...that wickedness cannot and will not ever befall you. That is not the promise that God makes. The promise that God makes is that if wickedness should befall you... ...even taking your life, that you have life in Christ that is ultimately inextinguishable. That you and I have a life in Christ that cannot be taken from us by a murderer's bullets... Therefore, we do not need to fear. We have a God who is present, who is with us, who gives us life inextinguishable, and ultimately will bring about justice upon this earth. We are His people. Therefore, we do not need to fear. We are not promised a life free from suffering. We are not promised a life free from the oppressive sins of the wicked what we are promised is that God will be with us, that the eternal life of Christ that he has given us, the resurrection life of Christ can never be taken from us, and the hope of future judgment when God will judge the living and the dead, at that point he will renew all things. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope that Christ offers, and it's the hope that will sustain us and bring us healing in the midst of suffering. God gives us freedom to ask the hardest of questions. And in the midst of suffering, God's word gives us truth that can orient our disoriented hearts. My encouragement to you is to bring your questions to God. Bring your suffering to God. Allow his word to cleanse you and to begin to bandage the wounds of your soul that have been inflicted in the last week. Allow God to begin to heal and bring the resurrection hope that Christ offers to your soul and the hope that he offers a future justice. God calls us, the helpless, to entrust ourselves to him, believing that he will ultimately bring about justice. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would be present by your spirit And that you would comfort by your word. Father, no song that we can sing, no prayer that we can pray, no words that are preached can comfort your people apart from the work of your Spirit. And I pray that you would comfort your people, that you would give them hope in a life that cannot be taken, hope in justice that will come, and peace, rest, and a fearlessness. As we face this wicked world, knowing that you are God, that you save, and that you will come again. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.